Hi everyone, my name is Neil Chappell. I'm in my first year of practice in the field of reproductive endocrinology and infertility. It's been my privilege to have spent the last 11 years in postgrad training learning the art and science of this profession. I'm now very excited to get going, playing a small role in my little corner of the world, growing families and delivering high quality evidence-based healthcare to all our patients. In the last decade, it's continued to amaze me just how little is understood about fertility in the general public. The misinformation, myths, mistruths abound. I think it's more so in our specialty than in most fields of medicine. For several reasons, that's always really gotten to me. And it seems that this is in no small part due to a divide between patients and practitioners. So we decided to start this little project, addressing that gap, bridging communication by having conversations. Hopefully, through our chats and different diagnoses, treatment regimens, ongoing research, other topics of interest, we can share a bit of insight into what goes on over here. Admittedly, the conversation about fertility is really increasing, and I have to say it's improving, but I feel like so much of it comes from the patient side, I feel it's incumbent on the practitioners to show up to this party as well. So I have here with me today Dr. John Stormont to help in this task, and I think now is a good time to let him introduce himself. Thanks, Neil. Um, I'm excited about this kind of foray into modern technology to help bridge the gap in, in misinformation. It's been a, a fun ride. I've been uh, in practice for almost 20 years now and, and always have considered myself a decent communicator. And then when we, I ask my patients when they leave a, a visit, and they, I say, well, so tell me your understanding. And it's oftentimes completely opposite of what I thought I was communicating. And so doing things like this, I think, will really help uh, patients listen and then re-listen and, and garner some information on how to approach their journey with infertility and to, to arm themselves as, as well as they can. So uh, thanks for uh, starting this, because I think it'll be fun. Yeah, I, I think it, you're exactly right. It's, it's funny to me how, how many friends and family and now patients that I've seen will come to the visit either one not knowing the first thing about the ovary or sperm or or they'll come with these conclusions about something that they read that is just factually inaccurate and so I, I am excited about putting this out there to, to kind of increase the conversation and awareness just so folks can advocate for themselves. Um, one of the things you wanted to discuss before is is it when we what do you look for when you when you look for a reproductive endocrinologist or a fertility specialist? I think a lot of people get confused and who do I go to first? And so they go to the flashy website, so they go to uh, Reputation. As you said, you're just you're just getting out. What has your experience been in the first six months of what patients anticipate your job and your role to be? And what would what advice would you give everybody in the world uh, for that? I think it's I think that's a good question because I actually do get that question a fair amount and there's a few facets that I consider and one is what their personality is like and what they like as far as a physician because physicians are like any other profession we all have personalities we all have nuances in how we communicate and interact with with patients and some people prefer different personalities and so that's that's one of my first go-to's to help me dwindle down the choices but the other one of the most important aspects in an REI practice is, is going to be the lab and how, how well the lab works and, and how well the lab and the, and, the, and the clinical side communicate to deliver the best possible results for the patient. So where do they go to find how good a lab is? 
So there are there are a few places that people do go, um, and there are a few places that you, that that you can go. Uh, and I think probably the most popular place for for patients that I've heard, and of, certainly a place that we talk about and think about a lot, is the SART website, S A R T, because most of the IVF clinics in America report to their pregnancy rates to to SART. Um, a few decades ago, when we just did an IVF cycle and transferred every embryo that we got from that IVF cycle, pregnancy rate per IVF cycle made sense. Right. Um, pregnancy rates now, when with the technology that we have where we can freeze embryos for subsequent transfers, et cetera, um, it's very difficult to just talk about pregnancy rates in, in a manner that's not very confusing. And so I think you can get lost in the weeds of SART, but it's not a bad place to begin. Yeah, I think that I say the same thing, One of the one, and I... That was a loaded question because it's so frustrating, <laughs> so frustrating to go on SART and you'd say, we had a great year last year. And you look at your rates and you're like, wait, how come it's that percentage? And it's, and it's, it's dealing with numbers. So for a patient, it's got to be even more confusing because we deal with this. So I would say to a patient, make sure that they have decent numbers and they're similar to the other people that they're considering. If, if there's a, a clinic that does 25 IVF cycles a year, and you have opportunity to visit a clinic that does 500 or 600, then I think you go to the larger clinic because anybody who's only doing 25 is not necessarily bad, but if you have a choice to go with somebody who has a lab with more experience. And so that's that's kind of the reason why I brought the question up. So when you're looking for somebody in direction, make sure the lab is good, and then, mm-hmm. and then to fit your personality to them. And, and, and lastly, um, one of the most important things for me is that, that a clinic be a- available to address whatever questions they have. And so I think, you know, having, having the staffing and the, the wherewithal and, and the experience to be able to address questions as they come up for patients, because there's a lot, I mean, that's why we're doing this. There's a lot of black holes and, and question marks um, out there for patients. And so and have, having a clinic that is, is aware of that and sensitive to that and available for the patients to help help them be their own advocates is, is, is huge. So so we've talked a little bit about how to look for an REI, but are you ever like, hey, um, you, this is a little too soon or maybe you should have come early? Like, how, how, do, how do people know? Because a lot of my patients are like, I don't even know if I should be here yet. Right. Do you see that? So I got a question from a referring physician not too long ago about a patient who saw me after only being quote trying for six months and she was critical of me seeing her too early but the patient's husband had a really low sperm count and my message was if the sperm count's low now why wouldn't you get on it and and try to figure out the solution if she's not ovulating so then you need to move ahead with trying to figure out why she's not ovulating Mm -hmm. and so um if you have somebody who's got a normal history and they've been trying for two months, it's sometimes just helpful just to give them information. What is an ovulation predictor kid? What, how can we do this at home and just get some information? Because if a patient's taking the time to come to my office, I think the, the most insulting thing I can do is to say, you don't need to be here mm-hmm. and don't listen to her. Mm-hmm. Um, take that time and they might walk away and say, guy, I, mean, I didn't realize that it was like this. We'll try this. And if it's, we're not successful, we'll come in. Um, too long, I, I see that m- most More commonly, often. you know, right? So the patient comes in and she's 37, she's been trying for four years, and you say, well, how long have you been having unprotected intercourse? She says, oh, for seven years. So they've technically been trying for a long time. 
in the longer duration of trying without success, the less successful you're going to become even with treatment. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that the sooner the better. I, their, their specific medical history and surgical history and everything that pertinent to them can affect that a little bit. But if, you're, if your OBGYN says, just keep trying for a year, I think that's really poor advice without doing a little bit of investigation. Yeah, it can be incomplete. Right. I, I don't mind patients coming in, quote-unquote, too soon. Because if I, if I believe that they can conceive without fertility treatments, then, yeah, we spend five or ten minutes talking about optimizing the window so that they can get pregnant. I'm happy to sit down and talk to somebody about that and then give them an appropriate timeline where they need to probably try and, and ramp up treatments. But I, I don't know that there is such thing as too soon, even though I hear it commonly from patients. And I wonder if one of the biggest hurdles in coming to see a specialist is is just not being able to wrap your head around what that visit might look like. And so I thought today we might fo focus the majority of our talk after that kind of long-winded introduction um, about what a visit with an REI actually looks like. And so um, how do you start your visits when you walk into a room and see a patient? So I, because... I am long-winded, and because I, I, <laughs> I tend to talk too much, um, I have, for the last what, over 10 years, had a standardized PowerPoint slideshow that I go through with. And I obviously, I digress depending on what the, the situation is, but I like to be consistent. you got to have sperm. you got to have eggs. they got to be able to meet. And so we talk about the sperm and all the in, important things that influence sperm production. One of the things that is rampant in today is a, a abuse and use of uh, testosterone for men. Mm -hmm. I feel I feel lousy. I'm 35. I don't have a sex drive. The doctor puts them on testosterone, and wham, it knocks their sperm down to nothing. So we talk about that. Sometimes that's that's it. You, know, you realize that's it. Um, we talk about um, eggs and egg quality and ovulation. We talk about um, fallopian tubes. And my I highlight all those things and ask them along the way. Frequently, by the time we're finished with that, which takes about 15 minutes, mm -hmm. we kind of know where we're going. You know, they said, oh, you know, I had surgeries that did this, and I had a ruptured appendix that did this. And so at that point, the visit goes more into specifics about them. Their case. And, and, ask, and ask them. And that visit can last anywhere from 15 minutes at the shortest to an hour and a half, depending on their what they need. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I differ probably from you and from others, I don't do a ton of diagnostic testing on my first visit unless they, unless they need it. I, and partly because I know it's expensive and I don't want to increase their cost if, if possible. Um, I really want to do testing if I think it's pertinent at that time. Um, as you know, we do a whole lot of focus on metabolism, diet, and insulin resistance. And that's something that takes a long time to discuss. Um, mm -hmm. And my, I don't, I think that's where I lose a lot of people, honestly. Um, and, and so when people are worried about what a first visit looks like, I, I understand that fear. I try really hard to bring that anxiety from a 10 down to a seven, if possible. That's another goal of mine in a, in a first visit. Yeah. I, I it's it's funny how I think we we are driving towards the same <clears throat> excuse me we're driving towards the same 
house there, but we just go about it a couple, you're right, we go about it a couple different directions. Um, I, I think a couple of things that you said that I wanted to hit on, I, I agree, testing and diagnostics and, and ultimately treatment can be expensive in, in, in the realm of fertility because insurance doesn't really play um, a game, the game as much as it does in other fields. Patients will ask me how much something costs, and I, I don't honestly know because I can't understand insurance, but, but that's why we have folks in, in the IVF clinics that do, and, and, and we make sure to, to make that transparent uh, going forward. But to talk about the differences in our first visits, um, I, I, I do kind of let them start off with their story. For, and, and usually it's about um, the, anywhere from 5 to, to 25 minutes, uh, depending on, on what they've gone through. Um, and then as they are going through their story, I'm taking notes on the high points that I, that I hit. But it's so funny. Your big three are my big three. Right. And so I say, okay, you know, thank you for your story. And now we kind of have a better understanding of each other. And so here's how your story falls into these three categories, right. eggs, sperm, and uterus. And then we talk about, you know, I, I hear this about the ovary. And, and so we need to kind of look into this. I hear this about sperm. We definitely need to look at this. And and yep, um, a lot, a lot, a lot of men are on testosterone these days. And some well-meaning, well-intentioned physicians are treating some clinically, you know, low testosterone. And then that's, you know, that's not necessarily inappropriate for a lot of cases. Um, it's just it's a, a very unfortunate side effect that it is a fantastic birth control for men and sure. that it renders you without sperm fairly effectively. You know, um, they did a study um, in the early 90s about um, listening and they found that the average duration from the time the doctor says in a visit why are you here until the time the doctor started talking again and it was like eight seconds or yeah, something like it's that short so, <laughs> so, so I, I'm aware of that and, and, mm -hmm. and so I, I intentionally tell them hey I'm gonna go over some stuff and then I'm gonna ask you a bunch of questions mm -hmm. and that kind of alleviates a little bit of stress in how they present it but I but I do fear that I that I come across too strong and not letting them talk first well but setting, it's a different it's, it's just a different way of moving it's setting expectations right. because like we said so many people come into the visit not really having an expectation and and so actually I'll leave the slideshow up um, yeah. Just so I can watch the clock on the screen oh, there so, you go. to make sure I don't talk for two minutes. There you go. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it's so hard, yeah, it <laughs> but is hard. Uh, but it's but it's important. You get a lot of information, right? Um, and so, yep. Uh, we, so hear their story and then kind of delve into it. And so I think the the um, the takeaway is that the first visit's really just a conversation yeah. and a very casual conversation about about someone's story, and then and then from there you can kind of go into more specifics about what can be done to, to tweak and turn and, and optimize the, um, that, that fertile window each month and increase your chances. Uh, and I'm sure that we'll spend the next, uh, hopefully, next few years tackling each of those, each of those little boxes and, 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 and uncovering, uncovering some um, Mythbuster kind of stuff there. We, we're surprised. We do a lot of surveys here, and we survey patients after their first visit. And, and the, I think the hardest thing for us as physicians is we, we think we do a good job and we don't. And it's and and I would like more immediate feedback. And the surveys are helping us mm -hmm. with that. So I think that getting feedback and knowing how we're we're performing and how we're doing on our first visit um, allows us to to more readily change our approach. 
Yeah, I I, told, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And and those those have, I mean, just in the few months I've been here, I've noticed that they they have been helpful. It, help, it helps me pause and think about how I say things and whether or not I need to say them a couple of times in a couple of different ways. We all you know develop analogies and and right. similarities and stuff that we can use to kind of drive home important points. You know, for egg number, um, I talk about eggs being in hibernation and coming out of hibernation and you know and we can go into that um at some so how point. do you explain amh to a patient okay i i love i love that but except <laughs> that i hear myself say it 16 times a day but i haven't heard you say it <laughs> and, and our audience hasn't heard you say it. No, okay so how do you explain amh to a patient? so so amh is anti-malarian hormone and it's probably it's the bread and butter for all reproductive endocrinologists it's a really important hormone that gives that gives a good indication of a patient's egg reserve. The way I explain that on usually on the first visit is I say that um, a woman has all the eggs that she has when she's zero, about 20 weeks gestation in her mother, and she holds on to all of those eggs for life. And every month, she wakes up a handful of those eggs from hibernation. The brain looks down, picks one to ovulate, and the rest die off that woke up from hibernation that month. And so. That tells you that egg number and egg quality slowly decline over time because they're in hibernation and they're and a few are withdrawn from that bank in hibernation every month. And that's not, of course, for the for the perfectionists out in the world, that's not exactly how it happens, right. but it's 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 a it's a simple enough analogy to, to kind of drive the point home. Each of the eggs that comes out of hibernation makes a little bit of the hormone AMH. And so the more AMH you have in your blood, the more eggs you have coming out of hibernation, and that's a really good marker for how many eggs are in hibernation. The more eggs you have in your bank, the larger withdrawal you're going to make each month. And so I, I feel like that drives the point home a little bit as to what AMH actually tells us. Um, because there's, you know, some people think that a low AMH, for example, means that they're infertile. And that's not true. That's not true. AMH has nothing to do with your ability to get pregnant, but it does have everything to do with, with how, how many eggs you have left before you kind of are, are getting close to, to menopause. And so that's a subtle but important distinction when we talk to pa patients that either have a very high AMH, which means some things, or a very low AMH, which is what we call diminished ovarian reserve. And so um, that's, that's, that's what I say. What, what do you say? Very similar. I, and I, I think the AMH number is, is kind of like your, your gas gauge in, in your car. And, and, you know, full tank means that you have a full tank of gas. It doesn't mean your car is going to necessarily run well or, or get good mileage or whatever. It just means that you have that part that's, that you can go with. And, and cons consequently, if you have a, a quarter tank, then you need to be more aware that you only have a quarter tank and everything's got to be working. So it, it makes you a little bit more um, proactive about treatment and about you know about um no, being aware of how many months you have left that's true and and you, you you alluded to that when we were talking a few minutes ago about when when to see an rei we didn't actually say the the textbook definition of patients under 35 should see an rei if they've been trying to conceive for a year and patients over 35 should see an rei if they've been trying to conceive for six months uh, without without success, that's that's the textbook definition. If someone's asking you, but just like you said, if if your egg reserve is a little lower, or if you're not ovulating, or if there's no sperm, then there's no point in in waiting those extra few precious months um, because 
Uh, when you're trying to get pregnant, every month that you're not pregnant um, is, is not fun. And so being intentional about that makes sense. So this next comment is going to be self-serving, uh, but it's, a, it's okay. It's, it's our podcast. Full disclosure. <laughs> so, full disclosure. You, you mentioned kind of incorrectly, you said you should see an REI after a year. It's really that you're infertile if you've been trying for a year. It's not seeing an REI. But the, the, the self-serving part of this is what's the difference in seeing their OBGYNs or potentially family practice doctor for an initial evaluation and and without being a self-serving answer tell me how soon somebody should see an REI subspecialist versus what level of comfort should they have in seeing their OBGYN? Well, I, I think it depends on the person, um, uh, very very much so, and it depends on it depends honestly on on the on the primary care physician. Right. So, for example, if you if you if your primary care physician really really likes hypertension, really likes high blood pressure, then I'm sure they're very comfortable with seeing someone to manage you know a like one drug high blood pressure. I have a little bit of high blood pressure. I need one drug, and sure. and, and I'm and I'm and I'm fine. There's another physician a primary care physician, internal medicine doc, that hates high blood pressure and is going to refer anybody that has a high blood pressure to a cardiologist. Right. And so I think it's probably similar there. If they're having regular cycles and, and they've had a, a reasonable evaluation and they know about the uterus and the tubes and they know that there's a normal sperm count and they just got married three months ago or whatever, yeah. um, then I think going to your OBGYN or your primary care physician and say, I'm looking to get pregnant. What do what can I do to help my chances? That's a that's 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 a reasonable conversation to have. And and some I think some OBGYNs will sit down and say, here are the fertile windows. Here's how you monitor ovulation. Uh, you know, and, and here here's you know the recommended you know time for intercourse. But you know other people say, you know we we're kind of more focused in, in our clinic on this. Go see the, your specialist. Um, and so I think patients need to feel comfortable in asking themselves do do I feel heard do I do I do I have my questions answered or do I need to you know kind of go go to a different place to 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 get that to to really go after my goals you know the as OBGYN it's a really really unique specialty and women put a whole lot of trust in us and and whether you know whether we're male or female it's still a huge amount of trust and it's a very vulnerable type of visit. So recognizing that I see a lot of true dedication and loyalty from a patient to her OBGYN. And as a result, I think that they feel guilty almost, almost like, you know, you know, you're, <laughs> you're being unfaithful. And so they're going to go to it. So my message to the listening audience is that 99% of the OBGYNs are not going to be offended or upset when you say, you know, hey, I'm looking at seeing a specialist. Who do you recommend? Because you're going to go back to them to deliver a, a baby. You're going to go back to them mm-hmm. for advice and health. And to the, to the audience, it's, it's really important to know that your health is your health, and you've got to be in charge of it. And unfortunately, in in this day and age, even with all the technology we have of communicating, I don't think we're great at communicating to patients and other doctors either. So I think that you you got to take charge yourself. And I think that seeing an REI is probably 
going to be more efficient um, at getting to achieve a pregnancy if you see them in that time frame you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I could have said it better. I think, you know, be, being your own advocate and just saying, hey, I'm looking to, to you know, kind of optimize my chances. What do you think about going to see someone? My feeling is that most primary care and most OBGYNs would feel would feel happy about that, whatever, whatever, because they're, they're advocates for you too. Sure. And so having those conversations is, is important. And so I think there's very little harm in having a conversation with a, with a reproductive endocrinologist about trying to get pregnant. And I hope that this, you know, brief conversation today, conversation number one of hopefully many, can shine a little light on the fact that that first visit is mostly just a conversation. Right. Um, so... Anyway, uh, I think as far as housekeeping goes, we are happy to receive some emails or thoughts or comments about what we can do to, or what, you know, anybody, any topics that anybody is interested in, in us tackling. Uh, it's funny, I've got, just in our short conversation we have here, I've got a, a laundry list of things that I kind of think we can delve deeper into. We are definitely open to, to feedback uh, from, from you. So, Thanks for listening and look forward to being back again uh, shortly.